This is the current federal tax developments for the week after July the 4th, July the 5th, 2021. Uh, current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and I'm broadcasting again this week from Phoenix. We're going to be talking this week about a few developments. First, we're going to start talking about the fact that the IRS has extended a special treatment of employee leave uh, donation programs uh, for COVID-19 relief, one that had expired at the end of December. The IRS also published guidance this week on making farm net operating law selections under the law that was passed at the end of December. The IRS also published a notice at the same time, or I should say, essentially a revenue procedure at the same time as they published instructions for new forms K2 and K3 for partnerships and S corporations that will be required on the 2021 returns. And this is relief for certain issues that may arise as various taxpayers try to properly complete that form. And finally, we'll discuss the Supreme Court turning down hearing a dispute between the states of New Hampshire and Massachusetts regarding the state of Massachusetts' ability to tax residents of New Hampshire who during the COVID-19 pandemic had spent all of their time in New Hampshire working remotely instead of working at the offices in the state of Massachusetts they had worked at before. And this particular case has some impact on issues for states that have convenience of the employer rules. We'll talk about what that means and more importantly, what it means, the fact that the Supreme Court did not pick up that case. So let's start out now talking about notice 2021-42. This came down on June the 30th, and this is the IRS extending a program that they had first announced last year in notice 2020-46. In notice 2020-46, the IRS discussed programs where employers had set up options for employees to donate leave time they might have, convert that to cash, and then have that go to various charities that were performing relief functions with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. That was published about this time last year. And the IRS said that in such programs, normally the problem is if I convert the non-taxable effectively benefit to me of getting leave time, if I convert that to cash, normally I have to pay tax on it. And that's true even if I don't convert it to cash, but I ask the employer to convert that time to cash for me to pay a third party, in this case, a charity. Now, the problem with that is, yes, you do get a charitable contribution deduction if that happens, but you end up raising your above-the-line income. And secondly, you also end up having a FICA problem for both the employee and the employer. So what the IRS told us a year ago uh, for the purposes through the end of December of 2020, that if you establish a qualified program, then there are various requirements to do it, and you can find those back in Notice 2020-46. But if you establish a program to allow your employees to donate some or all of their leave time and have that go to specified charities that were providing COVID-19 relief, that the employee would not pick that amount up in income, and the employer would not end up getting hit with payroll taxes on it. As I noted, originally this expired at December 31st of 2020. Well, the IRS had remained silent to date in 2021, 
never had said that these programs could continue or that they did continue, that it wouldn't operate the way it said at first, where you would have to have the employee pick up the amount as additional salary or wages, and then the employer and the employee would end up with FICA issues each. And then finally, the employee would get a charitable contribution deductions, which if they weren't itemizing deductions, was going to be worth at most $200, or I guess $400 this year, if married filing joint. So, you know, wouldn't have been the greatest. What the IRS has now decided is that these programs can continue all the way through the end of 2021. And they retroactively now have extended them. So it means if you've been doing this all year, apparently you have a payroll tax refund issue coming up and you have to agree to pay back the employee for the amount of FICA that the employee may have had withheld from their paycheck that now turns out not to be due. But you also could just ramp up such a program again. My guess is most employers that had such a program probably stopped it at the end of December simply because the IRS hadn't said that it was going to work past that point. So that's basically where we're at. If you want to have such a program to donate toward various types of COVID relief programs, you can do that. Not taxable. You can pick that up. It will be okay through the end of this year. And then we're back to not knowing where we stand on that. So just keep that in mind. Next up, tell you about Revenue Procedure 2021-14, also issued on June 30th. And this is a revenue procedure that deals with provision in the COVID-related Tax Relief Act of 2020, which was part of the Comprehensive Appropriations Act of 2021 that was signed into law on December the 27th of 2020. Now, one of the things which we had talked about at that time was that when Congress passed the CARES Act in March of last year, Congress went ahead and said, okay, you can now carry back net operating losses five years. For most businesses, their only option before had been to carry the loss forward. And since you could still elect to waive the carryback period and carry the loss forward, essentially people who wanted to carry it forward or who were thought that was better than what they'd get from taking it back could just essentially leave it as is. In fact, we were kind of allowed to elect doing that by doing nothing. Uh, theoretically, that would have been you know, an election we could make, or I should say, making that election on the 2020 return and dealing with that for 18, 19, and 20. Well, if you were a farmer, that might not have been so great. Maybe it would have been, maybe it wouldn't have been. But here was your problem, and this was especially true for farmers who had net operating losses in 2018. Those who had a loss in 2018 had probably carried it back, assuming they had income in 2016 or and 2017. They almost certainly would have carried the loss back to two years. They would have already received a refund at that point. Now, when Congress passed the CARES Act, they didn't put anything in there that allowed a farm to keep a two-year carryback. And while maybe you think, well, it's going to be better to go back five years, maybe not, especially if the loss is all absorbed in one year. So if your taxpayer you know, was not in as high a bracket back five years earlier in 2013 as they were in 2016, what could end up happening is the farmer would have to now amend the 2016 carryback because now the loss could not go to 16. Remember, you had to go back five years. 
So we'd have to amend to pay back the amount that we'd received as a refund for 16 and then turn around and compute the actual refund from 13 and could very well end up with a net basically out of pocket having to send the government money because we were forced to a five-year carryback instead of a two-year. And even if we hadn't filed the 19 return, it still may be true that 17 was a better year to carry the loss to than was 20. Or I should say 17 is a better year to carry the loss to than was 15, you know, than going back to 2014 for 19's return. And similarly in 2020, we might be more advantageous going back to 2015 instead of going back to 2018. Well, Congress allowed, as part of this bill, a farm to make an election to carry their losses back two years if they wished. And this revenue procedure outlines how you can make that two-year carryback, how you can do it in this case, okay? And it has various election procedures and issues. One of the key issues, though, they clarify here is what exactly happens if you elect to use a two-year carryback option and you are a farm. First thing is to make it very clear, if you decide I'm gonna go back into a two-year carryback, you're gonna to have to live with essentially all the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act limitations. That means for any year that you claim that loss by using a two-year carryback option, any amount going forward will be subject to the 80% of AGI limitation. So what that means is, remember, what Congress did in the CARES Act was said, okay, we're just going to skip and pretend that the TCJA provisions did not take effect until 2021. And that meant that, let's say, you did have a loss in 2018, but that loss, you know, you had nothing to carry it back to, so you carried it forward. That loss would be able to offset 100% of 2019's income. Now, if you're a farm and you let the five-year carryback happen, or you elect to waive the five-year carryback, then that carry forward can offset 100% of income for every following year until it's exhausted. However, if you make this two-year carryback election, that net operating loss can only offset 80% of taxable income. So that's one of our problems here, right? So that's one of the key issues here. Since it's coming out of a year, after 2017, and you're going back to this rule. As well, we're going to go to the deduction of how much NOL survives by using the modified adjusted taxable income rules under the TCJA, which should make sense, right? We're going to limit it to 80%. We're not going to go ahead and compute it as if you offset the whole thing. So we do get that benefit. And as I said, the carryback period is determined under the code. So if you do have five-year and two-year, you have a farm loss and a non-farm loss, the farm loss would go back two years. The non-farm loss is going to have to go back the five-year period in that range. So it'd be a little weird if you make this election. If you don't, everything would go back five years. So again, a little bit weird, but how we do it. This also has, assuming you have this problem, and you're looking at a taxpayer who wants to make the two-year carryback election, this procedure has the ways you do it on the 2020 return to take it into effect or to go ahead and leave things as they were. That is one option. If you've not fixed the 2019 carryback yet, you didn't file the revisions, uh, you basically can leave those alone. That'll be a deemed election. 
They tell you how to make how to get rid of a deemed election if you don't want to go that route and you actually do want to go back five years. And they tell you how to just make the election and undo things going forward. So as we say, gives you that break. If you have clients who are agriculture clients, this obviously is something that could be of use to them if they have losses in any years from 2018 through 2020. You have a two-year, but under TCJA rules, carry back, or you have a five-year carry back under pre-TCJA rules. So meaning we go back five and we don't have the 80% rules. Or you can elect to carry forward. And again, if you carry forward from 18, 19, or 20, you would still be using the CARES Act rules and not the TCJ rules. So there's one thing to uh, make clear, because I think some people might not have realized that if you make that two-year carryback election, you are going to have to go under TCJ rules if some of that loss survives and goes forward. So that might change your decision on whether you want to elect to take the whole loss forward, where you can use 100% offset going forward, but you can't carry back anything, or you want to carry back, get that refund, and then live with the 80% limitation on any years forward on that issue. So yeah, it, it's one of those little, one of those neat little things that uh, you know is a complication as Congress tried to help everybody. Next up, we're going to talk about schedules K2 and K3 for partnerships and S corporations. This is notice 2021-39, issued on June the 30th. Now, last year I talked about drafts the IRS put out last summer of Schedule K-2 and K-3. Uh, these forms are meant to give us much more detailed information about foreign operations, any sort of foreign activity, including things like tax credit, you know, foreign tax credits, would come on this multiple pages, as I recall, going to 20-some page document that will give us all of the gory details for all of the interesting foreign tax stuff that we really need the partnership needs to provide so a partner will know how to report things in that area. The IRS had determined last year that the little tiny area they gave us on K-1 obviously wasn't enough. And so you were getting a lot of attachments that were non-standard uh, going into what people should be reporting. Turns out the IRS now would like to have a little more consistency probably to help them in theory understand if they take a look at one of these K-1s, uh, what should be showing up on the partner's returns and how it should be reported. So beginning in 2021, they are going to require Schedule K-2 and K-3 on 2021 returns. The final versions of the forms came out a few weeks ago and the IRS at the same time as issued those 2021-39 on June 30th, issued draft versions of the instructions for the schedules K1, K2, and K3. The IRS is asking for guidance. You know, any sort of information or comments you may have on these particular forms. You know, I would say the instructions. The forms are basically a done deal, but the instructions aren't a done deal. So what they want is some guidance, right? for addressing structures and situations that would make it difficult to determine certain information. Uh, for instance, if it's a tiered partnership uh, structure that could complicate like mad trying to find out information about shareholders' interests in various entities, uh, I should say partners or shareholders' interests, tiered, I guess, would be partner generally, 
uh, or PTPs obviously have a much more complex situation for information they would have to obtain uh, from partners. So yeah, you're going to say they'd like to know because some of the information, uh, you know, that you can make reasonable assumptions. They want to go that route. They want to know what reasonable assumptions could you make uh, in filling out information on those forms. And they are going to be accepting comments on this. And they actually have kind of said, they don't really have a deadline per se, except they do remind you that these instructions are for the 21 return. So it's probably not gonna be terribly helpful to send them comments on this next February, you know, or March that it won't do you any good for that. They also are strongly suggesting that comments be sent via the regulations.gov portal. Uh, and they tell you again how to search in the search field uh, to find this area. But they want you to look at it, give them some comments and do it electronically. You can send in paper comments. However, they are strongly discouraging paper comments, noting that because of the super slow processing, and yeah, it's super slow. I think almost everybody knows that now, that the IRS is not moving through documents very quickly at all, especially paper submitted ones. Uh, it's very, very likely they won't actually get to look at your comments before they issue the instructions. So if you want them to do something, you need to navigate the electronic uh, page. If you have partnerships that are going to have to file these forms, because you do have various foreign structures, foreign entities, your own interest, in foreign companies, you know, foreign partnerships, whatever. You've got you know, significant foreign tax credit beyond something just coming off of mutual fund. You might wanna take a look at the instructions for K1 and K2 now. And because I have a feeling that you're gonna decide some of the things you're gonna be asked to do are just frankly, you can't do them. There's no way to do it. And make those comments to the service now. Oh, it's now's the time. We are sitting here in July. And I realize you're probably not thinking I don't have stuff to do, but it's going to be a lot easier to deal with these things now and try to get comments in than it's going to be to try to deal with these things come next March, you know, February and March, where suddenly you're trying to actually fill in the forms and discovering all of the problems you're going to run into. So, as I say, we're going to take a look at those two things. Now, what notice, what this notice 2021-39 does is offer relief from penalties. As you should be aware, a taxpayer is required to properly fill in information, you know, on for section 6038, uh, or it's just not 638, but be able to fill in proper information. What's my section reference there? Where they have it. 6031. Generally, we have to fill in and provide all information requested by the IRS on tax forms. And the hitch with partnerships as corporations is that you're really filing two different types of tax returns. You're filing a tax return that has its own penalties for things like incomplete late filings, but then you're also filing information returns that are similar to 1099s the K-1s, and those have dual penalties. One set of penalties is on you for providing, for failing to provide the IRS with the requested information on a timely manner. And the second one is with failing to provide the equity holder with that statement. So in theory, for if you foul up your reporting on K-2, you don't do it properly, the IRS says that the following penalties 
apply, or at least could apply depending on the type of entity. Under section 6698, the failure to file or show information on a partnership return, notice says failure to file. Yes, if you don't complete all information, it may not be a proper filing, which case then those nasty failure to file penalties for a partnership on the per K1 come after you. Similarly, under 6699, the same pair of issues arise for S corporations. So again, in theory, the failure to file penalty for the return could come after you. Uh, the failure to file correct information returns under 6721, that's the one with providing that information to the IRS, so you'd be deemed to have late filed those returns. Since you improperly filed them, they would not be considered, and you know, they're not really considered filed to you properly file them. And those penalties become larger the later you get. Similarly, you can double that penalty because under 6722, you'll be subjected to a penalty uh, for failure to furnish correct payee statements for an information return. And if you have to file 8865, then there's also penalties related to failure to provide that information. Now, that should be clear. In most cases, if you don't get this right, you're probably looking at at least three different penalties that would apply to the failure to file that the IRS could throw the book at you at. And they're all going to be as if you failed to file both the tax return and the information return. Obviously, those penalties can get very, very nasty. So the IRS is saying, well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to offer you, in essence, a certain level of relief. And what this does is this will give you a reasonable cause safe harbor. All of these penalties can be weighed for reasonable cause. The IRS has said that, you know what, if you establish you made a good faith effort to comply with the filing requirements per the instructions, then we're going to be, we're going to go ahead and waive the penalty for this year. If you don't establish you made a good faith effort, you're not eligible for relief under this provision, and it's highly unlikely you're going to get relief any other way if you do it. Now, one thing it makes clear when you read this notice is you have to show you made a reasonable effort to acquire all necessary information. This is not a carte blanche, ignore the form for this year because we're not penalizing anybody relief. If you cannot show that you did not make an effort, which despite your best efforts, you failed to be able to get all this stuff together, then you're going to be subject to the penalty. In one way I read this and go, well, as a practical matter, if I could establish what I need to establish, to get the relief under this rule, I probably would get the relief under the general, you know, reasonable cause test that the IRS put out for penalty relief. And I have a feeling what they're really doing here is issuing this to make agents and to make those in charge of this a little more apt to waive the penalty, you know, by reminding them of what, what would be a reasonable try. But yeah, be careful here. So again, if you have partnerships, we're not talking about normally a partnership that has two guys that owns a rental property, right? You know, two guys, both located, you know, in Nebraska, rental in Omaha. That's not really normally going to be majorly affected by the K2, K3 issues. But if your partnership is a little more complicated and, you know, deals goes cross borders, you may have a lot of information that goes on to K2 and K3. 
Again, if you're doing attachments, you're filling in that little section about foreign information on the return, and you are putting together schedules and statements and information on the K-1s. To report that stuff, you're probably going to have to transfer that over to K-2, K-3 for this year. So if you do have that situation, you deal with partnerships that have that, I strongly recommend you take a look at K-2, K-3, which are both out right now for partnership, S-Corp, et cetera, uh, and make sure that A, you can how much information can you get? B, what steps can you take to try to get any other information? And C, you know, at least start writing out your reasoning as to why you have reasonable cause if you're not going to be able to make that work, you know, and why and make that explanation. And probably consider giving comments to the IRS because the hitch is this won't stay on forever. At some point, the service is going to decide, well, you know, you, you probably should have should now have figured out how to get that information. And if you can't, then, you know, you haven't gotten it. We just don't think you're trying in a year or two. So probably better to raise the complaints to the IRS today about what's unreasonable for your type of partnership, your type of situation, to especially information you've got to obtain from partners or shareholders about, you know, their other characteristics. You know, you might point out some of those that you might have no legal right to get and say, look, you got to give us something or at least allow us, you know, or at least make the penalty go to the shareholder or the partner if they don't give that information instead of, you know, penalizing the partnership or the escort. Finally, this is a case I know a lot of people had been following, especially in the Northeast, because a lot there was a lot of angst over the past few years about the tests that's used in many northeastern states and Nebraska. I have no idea why Nebraska does it, uh, but especially the state of New York is the best known for this, uses a concept called the convenience of the employer rule. And that's for testing whether or not wages paid to an individual who is not actually working in the state, but is being paid by you know, a company in the state, or if a company has had multiple locations around the country, is essentially reporting back to an office in the state, whether that state can tax that as wages sourced there from the non-resident. Now, as I said, most states do not use the convenience of the employer rule. And in fact, sitting out here in the West, you know, I think basically the furthest West state I know of that uses the rule is Nebraska. So pretty much the entire West Coast, the entire West half of the country, for that practical matter, you know, is pretty much everything west of Nebraska, which is a pretty good chunk of Western U.S., is, you know, doesn't deal with this issue. It's not their problem. But there is the concept of convenience of the employer rule. Now, this is not technically challenging a convenience of the employer rule, but the concepts would have gotten after the idea of a convenience employer rule. This is a case of New Hampshire, New Hampshire versus Massachusetts, and it should be September, June the 28th, not that July if you look at the slide. It should be June the 28th of 2021. The Supreme Court issued in their order list by, you know, that came out on the 28th of June. They, de they denied New Hampshire the right to file the case against Massachusetts before them. Now, this is quirky because, and you have to realize this, when a state sues a state, 
This is the one type of case where the U.S. Supreme Court is not an appellate court, but is actually the initial trial court. They have to operate as a trial court to settle those disputes. These disputes do not go to U.S. District Court, don't go to the Court of Claims, they don't go to any other federal court, they go straight to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the U.S. Supreme Court, at least for seven members of the court, two of them disagree with this, what I'm going to say, but seven of them say it's okay, because obviously that's what we just did, uh, believe that even though they're the court of original jurisdiction, they don't have to hear the case. You know, it's not like generally, if I file a case in the U.S. District Court here in Arizona, as long as the court has jurisdiction, right, it's a case to have jurisdiction over, and I'm not blowing the statute or something like that, you know, the court has to hear the case. The court cannot say, yeah, you know, I know you got this and maybe you got a case, but we don't really have time to hear it. So we're just going to turn you down or we just don't want to hear that type of case. We're going to turn you down. According to seven justices, they kind of had the right to do that here. Say, okay, we're just, we don't, we don't care. We don't want to hear that. We don't have to give a reason. We're just not going to hear it. What happened was this is a COVID situation that came out of this. The state of Massachusetts, as you may have noticed, they had one of the earliest surges in COVID. You know, one of the first super spreader events, as I recall, was a convention in Boston. So we have this big event in Boston, right? We have the lockdown that occurred on the East Coast for the most part. And you have to realize, too, that geographically, the states in the Northeast are not that big. You know, we have counties here bigger than the states in Arizona, many of the states in the Northeast. So, you know, we, we basically have this problem that it's normally, it's not all that abnormal for somebody to live in one state and work in another in that area of the country. And that was what was happening to certain people when the state of Massachusetts locked down, right, closed the offices. People, of course, as we did all over the country, you know, as I think as probably as many of you did for some or all of last year, you know, worked from home. Now, you know, home is where home is. And if home happens to be in New Hampshire, even though the office you worked with was in Massachusetts, you were going to work from New Hampshire for most of the year. Now, Massachusetts generally had been using the same rule as most states that they looked at where you physically performed the services as an employee and taxed you as a non-resident only if you performed services in the state. But because COVID had disrupted so many things and shut down so many offices, Massachusetts adopted a temporary rule, which will continue through 90 days after the end of the state of emergency, which the governor in Massachusetts ended the state of emergency in the middle of June. So it's going to end in mid-September and we'll go back to the old rule. But during that time, if you had been working in a location in Massachusetts that was closed due to COVID-19 and you continued on doing work for the same organization, same type of work back at you know your home in another state, New Hampshire in this case, then Massachusetts considered those wages to be Massachusetts source wages, and you owed Massachusetts income tax. Now, since New Hampshire doesn't have an income tax, obviously, 
This is a difference between paying no taxes to anybody on that income or paying the taxes to the state of Massachusetts. If, let's say, the state imposes an income tax, you might pay higher income taxes, but it's not like you're paying none. You know, it's not like going from zero to whatever. And in some cases, if you're actually in a higher tax state, you may just simply have the, you know, the mess of doing two returns. But at the end of the day, you may actually pay more taxes because you're going to get a full credit on your home state return for what you're paying for the state that you're having to pay taxes to as a non-resident. So what happened in this case was Massachusetts puts out this rule. Now, the state of New Hampshire, which I think was kind of interesting, maybe one of the reasons why the Supreme Court decided not to look at this, the state of Massachusetts sued the state of New Hampshire on essentially on behalf of their residents, stating that Massachusetts, you know, had no right to impose their income tax on New Hampshire residents. And therefore, and since they're suing the state, this case has to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. This state went, this case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it actually attracted a lot of attention. One of the, one of the best known and one of the first uh, briefs that came in from another party came in from the Attorney General of New Jersey. Now, New Jersey is probably one of the states that is the most impacted by the convenience of the employer rule. A lot of people work in New Jer live in New Jersey, but work in New York or Pennsylvania, okay, which are, as I recall, both convenience employer states. New York certainly is. Pretty sure Pennsylvania is as well. So the problem is you live in one state, you work in the other. And New York City is the big problem for New Jersey. The problem is, of course, that New Jersey says, wait, source income is based on where you perform services. So New Jersey says, you know, unless you're performing services in New Jersey, we don't consider you a New Jersey, you know, a New Jersey source income to you. And therefore, for instance, let's say if I was hired by a New Jersey company to perform services, but I perform those services from here in Phoenix, my home in Phoenix, I don't have a problem. However, the state of New York said, yeah, no, no, no. We follow the convenience of the employer rule. Now, what's that rule? Well, under that concept, we look at whether, in fact, why are you performing your services in, take for example, New Jersey? Now, if you're employing, you know, they look to see effectively, and this is kind of summarizing it, there's case laws, it's more complex, and it's, let's talk about very roughly, and certainly how they're moving toward. You know, is there a valid reason why this employer would have had you, you know, locate in New Jersey or whatever other state? Is there a valid reason? So let's say if the reason, you know, let's say that they're actually doing support or, you know, you're a salesperson and you are going out there and you're visiting customers on site. And let's not put you in New Jersey versus New York. Let's put you in Montana versus New York. So it's not even reasonable to think you could somehow work in your office and travel these customers. No, you're going to be in, in Montana. And you do that, you, you provide, you know, you see them, you, you sell in person, and you provide training and on-site support. That's a valid reason why this company wants you in Montana and would object if you said, hey, you know what, I'm not going to be, I, I not want to do my work from Tennessee. 
Yeah, they'd object because you really couldn't do the work on the Montana customers from Tennessee because you couldn't provide that hands-on training. Let's say it's actually equipment that you need to do some actual, you know, hands-on work with. Yeah, you know, they could do that. So New Jersey gets hammered because, of course, they end up having a lot of people, and especially during this past year, that were at home in New Jersey, but that were still being treated as performing services, you know, having New York source income being earned while they were doing this stuff in New Jersey. And the only choice New Jersey would have to get around this would be to say, hey, guys, you guys, you know, citizens here, tough luck. We're not giving you a credit because that's not really New York sourced income. I uh, actually saw that come up in one case a number of years ago. I was looking at case law from Illinois about a situation where Illinois did say with an employee that was taxed in New York, they said, oh, that that's nice, but we don't consider that New York source income. So yeah, you're paying tax to them. That is wonderful, but we're not going to give you a credit. We can go through the reasons why that actually can happen. It has to do with that whole bit. We talk about multi-state taxation. You know, in essence, or is it fairly apportioned? Does it somehow relate to the state? And is, is your system internally consistent? Meaning, if every state did it your way, would we avoid double taxation? We don't worry about whether we really do avoid double taxation because we don't force every state to do it the same way. That's where the problem. Well, the Supreme Court this week told us thanks, but no thanks. The Supreme Court is not going to hear the case of New Hampshire versus Massachusetts. They don't give a reason because they don't have to. Uh, Justice Thomas and Alito uh, were the two that said we should, they should have heard the case. Now, they always say basically that we should hear these cases because they believe the Supreme Court has to hear these cases because the states can't go anywhere else. However, obviously, they have not yet convinced the seven others on the court of that fact. Uh, and I think Justice Thomas has been trying to convince his other members of the court uh, of his position ever since he came on the court. He's been there a long time, had a lot of different people, and he still hasn't convinced them. So not happening there. Now, in this case, though, I think there are various reasons that they really would give push comes to shove why they did it. First thing is it appears the harm party is not really the state of New Hampshire. It's New Hampshire, you know, residents who could file, you know, who could challenge this position against the state of New York on their own, raise their own refund claims. And as far as Supreme Court is concerned, that would develop the whole body of facts and, you know, analysis and things and let them review a case the way they like to review it. But I have a feeling that has a lot to do with it. It is not really a statement of the court saying they agree with this concept that a state can impose income tax on employee who never sets foot in the state. However, they've never really objected to that concept very much either. So be aware of it. I do think what's going to happen from this, though, is the convenience of the employer states will get more aggressive on this position. And if one of the long-term effects we see from the COVID pandemic is that we really do have a growth in work from, you know, basically remote working. And, you know, states like West Virginia that we're going to pay people $10,000 to move there to say you can ro work remote from here too and we're a lot less expensive to live in than New York. If we start seeing that pick up and people start relocating, I think you could see states reach out and say, hey, you know what? You know, we're going to go ahead and we're going to tax this as California income or, you know, whatever other states involve Minnesota income, you know, Arizona income, whatever, uh, because they're working really for the company here 
And, you know, that community employer rule, we think it sounds better now. We'd like to follow it. It is a bit more like the rules we're seeing for business income post Wayfair, right? Where we do look at what state, where is the value received? And so I have a feeling this would survive scrutiny. Uh, and I'm concerned that states may adopt it. So key warning, be careful if your clients are accepting work. And this is something I think, especially in the West, you'd be very careful of because the state of New York will find a convenience of the employer situation, even though the employee may be in Idaho. You know, I, they may have lived in Idaho, they may move to Idaho. Don't assume they're not still a New York employee. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of weird things and you want to get into the study of that. But you want to make, you know, very, very careful if you have a client who is actually working for a company that has no operations in your state. And, you know, they're working for them there. Are they working for, you know, is that a state that's going to be testing a convenience of the employer rule? And if it is, how do they view that rule? Because I think that's going to be crucial as we look at this. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 5th, 2021. Current Federal Tax Developments brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your state society of CPAs. I am starting to go back out and going to be doing some CPE sessions. Actually, I have sessions coming up in August in Phoenix. We'll be talking about trust, estates, and partnerships. Three days would be interesting. And it will be, and those will be the first courses I will be doing this year uh, that will actually have a live in person audience. At least, you know, nothing changes regard to COVID. We'll keep our fingers crossed on that. But as it stands right now, we do have people signed up for live. We have people signed up for the webinars being offered both ways. So keep your eyes out. We are going back out and doing courses. I am still doing webinars, you know, for various places around the country, especially as new things develop. So something brand new happens. We get a new tax law, which we might get this year. I'll probably be doing some of those things. So we're looking at it. But definitely, you know, take a look at your CP catalogs. We are starting to see some, you know, some states are starting to actually book live sessions. Uh, they'll be coming out over the year, I think, as different places will have different comfort levels. So be aware of it. Also, I do monitor, as I mentioned every week, uh, discussion boards for the state societies in Arizona, uh, New, New Jersey, get the right names in here, Minnesota, Illinois. Washington and Idaho. So if you're a member of one of those societies, you want to take a look and participate at your boards, except for the Idaho one, all the other ones use the Connect system. So you'll see the state society refer to it as a Connect board, so you'll be there. Idaho uses a slightly different structure. So, you know, you want to go in and use their structure they just started. Uh, if I see something I think I can help with, I'll try to respond. Otherwise, uh, take care. It's beginning of July. Uh, you know, we're here in the middle of summer, and with the heat that's been in a lot of the country, uh, you probably now are very aware it's summer. So, you know, take care. Don't get too hot. We know a lot about that here, but I think a lot of parts of the country that don't know a lot about that have had to discover a lot about it in the past few weeks. So hopefully you're all beginning to cool off some. And in any event, we'll let you know what happens in the next week in area federal taxes as we go to our next set of current federal tax developments.